Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I am here with my co-host, Matt Scott. Yeah, that's me. I'm and, here. And we have we have a special guest today. Very special. Very special. And yeah, we have Jim West with us today. And Jim is he is a notable character in our community. And he's also he's also a very experienced overlander and traveler himself. And he has participated in the Camel Trophy. And he also currently does a lot of instruction with 7P International. So we're going to talk today about the principles of overlanding. And we're going to talk specifically about recovery. So thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. And a special thanks to Danner Boots, who is supporting this episode today. Danner's new Logger 917 was inspired by the classic pattern and lines of Danner's original cocked logging boots made in the Pacific Northwest. They're built with Danner's trusted quality and durability. The Logger 917 is designed to ensure you're comfortable and dry wherever your adventure takes you, even if it includes a little bit of recovery along the way. With a Gore-Tex waterproof liner and a Vibram SPE rubberized EVA midsole, the Logger 917 offers performance, waterproofing, and lightweight comfort, all in a rugged yet refined style. Thanks, Danner. So when we talk about the principles of overlanding, one of the things that we want to focus on is getting as close as we can to those first principles, which is what we're going to discuss today. And we're also going to introduce a little bit of a new concept, which is we're going to try to introduce the counterpoint to all of these things that are more traditionally discussed. Yeah. Um, so it's this idea of falsifiability because we're not talking about math and we're not talking about physics. So when you're talking about opinion... Um, we recognize that there are always other ways of doing it. So we we want the listener and the viewer, in the case if you're on watching us on YouTube, to know that there is not always one way to, to do this, that there's other ways to do it. You have to be really careful when people use words like always or never. In my experience, that just usually means that they have very little experience. So uh, we're going to really uh, be careful about the always and nevers, uh, but we are going to talk about things like the terms used around uh, recovery. We're going to talk about not getting stuck in the first place. We're going to talk about the right equipment, and uh, we're going to go into some other points of conversation around all of that, including vehicle-mounted winches. So let's start off with some of the disclosures that we need to go through today. So go for there, it. There are some. Yeah, I, I am. I'm the U.S. importer for Max Tracks. We're talking about recovery equipment. We're going to talk about recovery boards. I think that that's an important thing for the for the reader, the listener to know. I'm going to have an inherent bias on that stuff. And, and I guess, you know, Jim, with, you know, with 7P, you guys are also manufacturing recovery equipment. Yes. Um, you're also a, a, a service provider of four wheel drive training. So we always like to just be, you know, very upfront out in the clear about any kind of biases that we have. So we don't have to then and dwell on them later. Absolutely. Yeah. And what that means is as a listener, you can just choose to c- ignore anything that we talk about around Max Tracks or, or about 7P, um, but we are going to include it because these are things that we've used and we have some experience around that you may form your own opinion about. And there are, of course, alternatives to these things as well um, that we can include in the show notes. But let's start with um, these critical terms. So one of the first things we need to determine when we're doing a recovery is, is it a dynamic recovery or is it a static recovery? Now, that is a term that I, I like to get into the mindset of, am I moving a tree off of the trail or am I in a very slow speed, very precise recovery maneuver, particularly in rocks, if you think about expensive sheet metal, you normally don't 
don't want to build in a whole bunch of energy into the system when you're trying to be very precise around a winching operation. So we call those static recoveries. When they're dynamic, that can be vehicle to vehicle, which means we're using a kinetic energy recovery rope. Or if we're doing winching and driving, oftentimes we will introduce components into the rigging that allow for taking up some of that tension and allow for it to absorb some of the differentiation in vehicle speed and winch speed. Um, and that becomes more dynamic. Um, so those are some of the some of the terms around that. Why don't uh, you talk a little bit, Jim, about working load limit. Oh, okay. So, I mean, it's the one thing that's super important, you know, where you're getting your recovery gear. It should have a few numbers on it. It should be rated. Um, as we say, it should be purpose built for your application. Working load limit, W. So, it's basically the maximum amount of load that a particular piece of equipment has that it can continue to use day in, day out. It doesn't damage it by by that amount of working load or, or stress that's put on it. Yeah, absolutely. And that came from the overhead rigging industry, much of that. So, Think of it every day, day in and day out, these shackles are being used to haul loads in a factory or some kind of an industrial setting. So they're designed to work with that load day in and day out. Um, So typically on a metal shackle, a D shackle or a C shackle, screw pin style shackle, we'll see working load limit represented on those components. Oftentimes on pulleys, we'll, we'll also see them represented. Now, what we'll also see on consumer recovery gear is minimum breaking strength. Uh, we may also at times see uh, maximum breaking strength too, which I think is something that we want to be careful with yeah. um, because uh, that's um, that's telling us- Encourages to, people to test it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, we want to understand what the minimum breaking strength is, which means that there's a degree of repeatability around that certification. And minimum breaking strength is very useful for us around vehicle recovery. So you'll typically see minimum breaking strength for ropes and we'll see it for winch line extensions. We'll see them. We'll see that for winch lines, et cetera. We also want to make sure that the components that we're buying have minimum breaking strength listed on the item. I, I don't like it when it just comes in the packaging. Yeah. I like it when it or actually rated has rated strength or something. Yeah, you know, right. I think, I think one of the things that you touched on was purpose built stuff. I remember when I was first getting into four wheel driving, I'd, you know, go to the farm store and I'd get the, you know, the same looking shackle that everyone else was getting. Um, but when you really start to kind of drill down into, you know, what separates that from a Van Beast shackle or, 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 yeah. or something, right. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think purpose built is, 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 is a huge thing. Yeah, totally agree. And working load limit is also not always the same. Most of the inexpensive shackles that we see, um, there'll be a four times rating, right. uh, a Van B shackle is a six times rating. So it really depends on what you're buying. And that's why it's so important uh, to spend the time to do that research. And for those that are listening and even watching on YouTube, we have an additional member of the cast today, uh, <laughs> Dak, who is a greyhound, an amazing, awesome greyhound. Um, so make sure you adopt a greyhound if you are interested in. But he's also licking dog. the table. He's, he's currently licking, <laughs> hey, bud, currently licking, the, overland, licking the, table. <laughs> the overland international table. Exactly. So, but uh, minimum breaking strength is a really important one. We typically want to have it on the rope or on the, the shackle or 
on the pulley block because it's so easy to get the item separated from its packaging or separated from its tag, for example. If it's integrated in with it, uh, maybe right into sewn into it, for example, then we have that as a reference when we're going to do a recovery. So it's important to have that. We also want to talk about gross vehicle weight rating. Oftentimes people will say, oh, I'm going to buy the recovery kit for what my curb weight of my vehicle is. Uh, that's typically not a good idea because for multiple <laughs> reasons. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of Tacomas with a gross vehicle weight rating of, let's say two pounds and they weigh 8,000. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, curb weight is what it actually weighs. Gross vehicle weight rating is what the vehicle is supposed to weigh at its maximum. It is the curb weight of the vehicle. So the dry weight or however you want to think of it with its allotted and engineered cargo capacity factored in. Cargo capacity also includes um, the passengers and and all of that thing. It's all cargo. It's all things that are not bolted in and didn't come from the factory. Yeah. So we want to make sure that when we purchase recovery equipment, we're buying it for the curb weight or the gross vehicle weight, whichever one is greater, because there are many people out there that own vehicles that are over gross vehicle weight rating. So, um, but why we want to do that is that a couple things. We can be overloaded for the recovery gear that we have. Um, and then we also need to be mindful of who are we traveling with. If we've got a 70 series Land Cruiser and an Earth Roamer, um, yeah. we have to be thinking about um, it's not a one size fits all in that situation. So we may need to have different. Yeah. And you, recovery you don't gear. always want to use, uh, you know, more is not always better because Absolutely. you have to remember that that one million pound strap that you need for a, an earth roamer is just going to rip the bumper or the frame off of the Tacoma or, or samurai or yeah. samurai yeah. or or whatever that may be. You also have to you know, factor in rated recovery points. That's not really a huge thing in the United States. You know, that's, that was definitely one of my takeaways when I was working in, you know, in the magazine world in Australia was that you had rated recovery points as well. And that's something I would love, love, love to see happen in the United States because, you know, you you buy an XYZ bumper and it's got a, you know, a a D-ring receptacle welded on the front. Well, what is it welded to? Is it actually engineered? Has there actually been somebody that knows what they're doing, figuring out that calculation? Well, and you- ARB is good on that. ARB does- do that. And they're um, starting to sell, ARB is starting to sell rated recovery points now. Yeah. In yeah. The US. Yeah. Very. Well, and even just backing up a bit before you put the, the expensive bumper on the front is people confuse recovery points with lash down points. Yes. Um, which are, can be very, very different. Some of the older Toyota stuff, it's synonymous. They have very, very high rated factory points. Um, which is great. But just knowing to recognize that this is for the tow truck to pull this up on or to get strapped down on the car transport versus doing a kinetic recovery where it's going to let go and, and basically be a, a missile. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the what looks like a recovery point, like even on a Land Rover, it is just a lashing point. True. So it's really important to know what that is. Um, and yeah. another reason why we don't want to use straps that are too thick is that um, if we have a light vehicle, a couple light vehicles, we don't get the rated stretch out of the strap. So you lose a lot of the dynamic effectiveness of a recovery strap or a kinetic energy recovery rope. All right. So the next thing that we want to talk about is the marshal. So when we are doing a recovery, someone's going to be the marshal. It may just be you because you've gotten stuck all by yourself, but you want one person that's responsible, that's in charge. And so they're going to typically be doing a lot of the communication. They're typically going to be doing 
doing the spotting and the hand signals. Uh, They're also going to be keeping non-essential personnel out of the recovery zone. So there's this triangle that forms within a recovery that um, is kind of a a zone of danger. And we want to keep as many people as possible outside of that. And at certain times, everyone outside of that, that you can possibly adjust for. So we want to have a marshal in place that's going to be enforcing safety and being good about communicating. They're typically someone with some experience, but we want to be clear about, all right, who's the marshal, who's in charge, um, and then let everybody else just record it with their cell phone from a distance, right? (laughs) So um, yeah, we want to know who the marshal is. All right. And then now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the material that some of these ropes and straps are made out of. Some of them will be made out of nylon. Some of them will be made out of polyester and some of them will be made out of Dyneema. Now they have very important roles to play. So a nylon strap will have stretch. Now, the amount of stretch depends on how it's woven and other and how thick it is and other factors. But if you have a nylon strap, it will stretch. So you want to, I've actually seen tree straps that were made out of nylon. They got it wrong. The manufacturer got it wrong. And uh, you don't want a tree strap to stretch. We want that to be made out of polyester so that we end up with the effect of null stretch. Now, when we say null, it means limited or the minimum amount possible. Um, Even Dyneema, even that fancy winch line will still stretch a little bit, but we want to achieve null stretch. Um, And then the last thing is Dyneema. uh, Jim, why don't you talk us a little bit about Dyneema? Will it come into the off-road world, um, probably 10, 15 years ago, I'll probably get it, get that wrong. Primarily from, as uh, like, like you said earlier, from the lifting industry, uh, but a lot of the other things that we have we have incorporated into off-roading has come from the sailing industry, which is seems odd. But uh, Dyneema was really popular in sailboats. It's light. It's incredibly strong. Um, it actually stretches uh, thickness for thickness less than wire rope. Um, wire rope tends to, to unwind and you get stretch in it. Um, so it turned out to be a, a, a quite good material for um, the replacement of winch ropes, for extensions, for those kind of things. It, there's always the the debate, what's better, wire or or uh, synthetic? Yeah, and let's talk about that. They both have their Ooh. places, you know. Ooh, um, getting into it now. Yeah, it's automatic or, or manual transmission. I mean, all these, yeah. So to be fair, uh, I have two vehicles. I, ha- I have my Land Rover, I have my Jeep. The Jeep has wire rope that it's always had, and it works great. We've used wire rope in this industry and in lifting industry for a hundred years. It's, it's a very good material to for this. Um, um, its weaknesses are it does stretch. Um, it has mass. So when something fails, it's a lot more hazardous uh, if you're standing around. Dyneema came into the, the world. It doesn't stretch as much. Um, so that inherently makes it less dynamic, so less dangerous. It does absolutely have a recoil. The whole the whole thought yeah. process that it, you know, you put 10,000 pounds on it, it breaks and it drops to the ground. It does, but it's dropping to the ground while moving across. Still the a lot of energy. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how much we had a, during one of our winch tests, we had Dyneema fail right at the fair lead. And it took the fancy ARB sail that we had on it. And it took all of the other components and it all it went not only back to the tree it was connected to, it went past the tree about 40 yards. So um, uh, the key to it is that since there's less stretch, it has less energy that's being absorbed in it or retained into it. Um, so that way when it breaks, it doesn't have as much energy to move. However, the key to it is it has less mass. So the a cable, you know, the cables that we use for winching, they're also using the logging industry. People don't know this. They're using the logging industry to cut logs in half. It actually makes for a really great saw. 
<laughs> so the reason why people lose legs and everything else is that it's got mass to it and it is at high speed. It's a very sharp um, instrument that can cut through muscle and bone. So if you get hit with dyneema when it breaks, um, it doesn't mean you're not going to go to the hospital, but you're probably not going to lose a limb. You're just going to have a really bad welt or maybe a bruise, uh, for example. So it's much safer by reducing the mass and remo- removing the component of it that would be a cutting surface. Um, so that's one of the really big things about dyneema. And, and I think one of the things while we're on this that is worthwhile um, just bringing up is there are catastrophic effects that can happen from a recovery that goes wrong. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the Marshall, the, the main spotter, but I always like to say, if you don't need to be there, don't be there. You may think that you are helping. You're often just, you know, planting the seeds of confusion. Make sure kids are, you know, I, yep. you can you can kind of tell where that's going to, I'm not saying where it's going to break, but you can just, just remove them from that area. I think that's always something that you can err on the side of caution. Um, I don't know, something that I always, I always just like to throw in. I mean, yeah, so true. Yeah. But you know, another thing that's nice about Dyneema is it's because it's used in the Marine industry is it's UV stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, a lot of people think that it like degrades yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and it fades, but it, it's not right. really yeah, the, the, a, the, the dye strength. will fade, but the, the high density polyethylene, that is what, Dyneema is. Dyneema is the brand name for HDPE. It's it's UV inert. Yeah, so. it's very UV stable. You'll, stable. It's not inert. It is yeah. stable. You'll have you'll have some reduction in coloring, uh, but it it will last a very long time on the front of your vehicle. So those are the terms surrounding it. So let's talk about step one around uh, overlanding and recovery, which is don't get stuck in the first place. <laughs> That's the so easiest you, day. Yeah, just don't get stuck. Just guys. don't do it. That is it. We're done. Yeah. Vehicle recovery. Don't get stuck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so Jim, what are some tips that you would give the listener about what are some things that they can do preemptively to not get stuck uh, in the first place? Uh, whenever I teach recovery classes, uh, one of the things, and and it typically gets it gets a couple of responses. One, if if it's a co-ed type class, the the female partners typically give a dirty look to the male partners or a, a knowing look. But at what I always say is uh, the automotive industry put a mechanism in cars pretty much since cars have been cars um, that can get you out of the situation. It's called reverse, <laughs> which is again, you know, I'm gonna. Live to fight a, 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 bet, a, a different day. Um, yeah. I see something and okay, I'm going to get stuck. And sometimes, I mean, I'm I'm that guy. Sometimes like I'm going to get stuck and, and that's okay. If you're looking for just a nice day out and you don't want to get muddy or just or sweaty or, you know, it, it's just not not the plan today. Put it in reverse and try a different way. It's it's not a failure. It's not a it's not a chink in your manhood. Yeah, it's yeah just making good decisions. Separating the ego. Oh yeah, I think in four wheel driving is yeah, is so huge. Yeah. Um, you know, most of the catastrophic scenarios I've seen people get into, hundred percent ego caused. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of times. And if we remember the goal of overlanding is to travel. So there may be an easier way around. And we're also constantly being mindful of mechanical sympathy. Scenarios that get a vehicle stuck also puts the vehicle under a great deal of stress. So um, by backing up and taking another route around. Now, if we're just out having fun and we're recreating, then all power to us. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So one of the things that I really want to touch on early in this don't get stuck process is getting not only driver training, but recovery training. Uh, Matt and I talk about this frequently in the podcast that the best investment that we can make is in educating ourselves. I look at my travels and I know only 
only 5% of what I aspire to know. And the more training that I can get, the more education that I can get from people like Jim and like 7P or other organizations that are high quality training organizations that have a lot of travel experience, we can gain so much from that. By getting driver training, we can build in a set of skills, toolboxes in our mind and in our muscle memory that allow us to do a better job of driving that reduces the likelihood of us getting stuck. So we want to focus on driver training. More importantly, around all of this, we really want to get training uh, when it comes to vehicle recovery. Uh, And that's because it is such a dangerous operation and it can be very complex. Rigging can be very complex depending on the scenario. It's not as simple as unspooling the winch wrapping the rope around a tree and pushing the button because that kills the tree, damages the rope, um, and it has a very high likelihood of a failure point at the hook of the Dyneema. So all of those things just happened and the uninitiated didn't know that. And that's why training is so critical. So when we think about vehicle recovery, let's make the first priority of looking maybe a local club, Uh, maybe go on to one of the forums and find an experienced member that's willing to do maybe some pro bono training, maybe go to an Overland Expo or some kind of another event. Uh, But if you really want to get the highest quality training, the most um, proficiency out of it, you want to look for an organization that has a lot of experience, not only with recovery, but with overland travel as well. You want to be very careful with the trainer that only focuses on recreational four-wheeling because they will typically focus on the idea of recreational four-wheeling, which is maximizing the vehicle in technical terrain, as opposed to maybe being as conservative as you need to be as a traveler. So find trainers that are also have a couple of passports. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I know you work for 7P, but I think that's one of the cool things with 7P is like all of the guys I know, they're they're incredibly well-traveled. You know, I mean, you are an international organization too. Earlier you're talking about your, you know, guys in Scotland and guys in Wales and, you know, kind of all over the place. You know, there is, you know, I4WDTA, this is not to say anything negative on them. I4WDTA is certification body. Um, But within that, you're going to find, you know, a plethora of different personalities and types, you know, just to kind of reiterate what Scott said, make sure you find somebody that is um, not trying to teach you how to drive an ultra four course, somebody that's teaching you like, okay, you're traveling around the world. You're not, maybe that they understand actually what you're doing. Well, and, and being a traveler is key because it gives them the insights of regulations in other countries. It helps them understand the things that you encounter as a traveler, um, the things you encounter when you come through a port or through a border crossing or the the other kinds of vehicles that you're in or you, you will interact with and maybe the other cultures that you'll interact with and that helps you be more successful. Um, Overland Experts is another good organization yeah. that we like to recommend uh, for training as well. Yeah, It's one of the things, if, if somebody's new into this world, oh, um, they've bought a vehicle or they haven't even bought a vehicle, and, and but they're they're wanting to. A lot of people have, if you say off-roading specifically, you know, they think of Baja 1000. Back to the trainer, you know, if if your trainer shows up with the rock buggy on the trailer and you want her on overlanding aspect, you might have picked the wrong person. Yeah. Um, and conversely, if you want to go fast and, and they, they show up in my, my Land Rover <laughs> or a Sprinter van, it's like, man, probably the wrong person. So Your Land Rover can do anything it wants. Right till it doesn't. Until it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so it's, it's a very broad recreation. It um, is. Overlanding, uh, like you say, Scott, is it's more about, and it doesn't have to be world travel. I mean, that's what the three of us absolutely aspire to, but it can be as simple as just, you know, okay, I'm going to go out for a week and just yeah. go from point to point. 
but it is, it is about vehicle sympathy. It's not about, you don't have a pit crew. So when you roll into camp, there's not going to be a whole bunch of people putting your car back together because you've abused it all day. So it it is vehicle sympathy. And it really is a mindset that comes with that. And that's why you want to have that good fit between the trainer and the traveler. And that's just what we're recommending is make sure that the trainer is also a traveler themselves because it will help not only them be more relatable, but have some more insights that will help you in your travels wherever you're going. So training is really important. Um, and another thing that helps us with not getting stuck is using the ve- the right vehicle for the conditions. Uh, I think about if I was to drive my 110 in Antarctica, um, I don't think I would make it off the runway. You would freeze. Freeze <laughs> yeah. to death. I would freeze to death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wouldn't start. You wouldn't um, be able to see it on the windscreen in about yeah. two seconds. Yeah, I'd be all fogged up. Um, so use the right vehicle for the conditions. So so um, if you're going to be crossing large swaths of sand dunes, you want a certain kind of vehicle um, that's going to help you get stuck a little less. Pair your vehicle well to the terrain. Think about the terrain that you're going to be crossing by having the right vehicle. There's a and, and, and while we're talking about it, you know, pair the vehicle to the modifications you're going to make too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. again, I always kind of I use the example of of the ubiquitous Tacoma that weighs you know what a Super Duty should, but you know a, a Tacoma with three thousand pounds of stuff on it is going to get stuck really easy. That vehicle, that amount of tire, there's a lot of things that go into the amount of gearing the vehicle has. Make sure that, you know, if you're going to put a four-wheel camper or uh, some kind of expedition conversion or something, make sure the vehicle is actually designed to carry that kind of weight because that um, greatly affects your off-road capability. Yeah, well, no and, question. and understanding that, that, so you buy, we'll pick on Tacoma, even though it's a magnificent vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, like but we're, we're, we're picking on it because it's yeah. amazing because they're never, great. Yeah. Okay. It never breaks <laughs> down. Yeah. Unlike, uh, anyway, so you buy this car and I get this all the time and people are like, okay, I, I you know, I, I want to lift it. I want to put bigger tires. I want to put the, the rear rack, the rooftop tent. And, and I always try anything you do, anything has a plus and a minus. Yeah. So yes, I, you know what, I go drive it. I need a little bit more ground clearance. So I'm going to lift it up a little bit. Cool. You've changed the center of gravity. You've done this. It's better here, but it's less capable here. So just going into it with the mindset that everything I do is going to have a plus and a minus. Yeah. So as long as you understand that, then you're a lot more eyes open when you make your purchases. Yeah, definitely. yeah that's so true. And then talking about purchases, making sure that uh, the tires are appropriate yeah. to the conditions. I mean, it's amazing how many people buy mud tires and they live in the desert. It's not the best tire for the desert. So making sure that you have the right tire, which will really help uh, around getting stuck, especially when you're talking about mud, Uh, but you're more likely to get stuck in the sand with a low horsepower vehicle with a mud tire than you would be with an all-terrain. And that's simply because of the flotation effect and the way that the sand keys with the lugs. Now, the more that those lugs dig, the more they become a paddle with low horsepower, the more likely you're going to go down instead of forward. So um, you want to pair the right tire for that as well. And then you also want to start by airing down. I, it's so funny. Yeah. Can we just end this now? Like how to not get stuck. <laughs> air air down. down your tires. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it, it, you would be, guys. I'm always amazed. So we'll get out in sand is sand is probably the biggest place where you see somebody stuck and, and not horrible stuck, but just kind of stuck. And you go out and the first question I ask, have you aired down your tires? And they say, they look at you like, what, <laughs> what magic do you, <laughs> why would I want flat tires? Um, 
and quite literally, you know, taking, taking 20 pounds out of the tires and they drive right out. It's like, yeah. you're, you're not stuck anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not magic. The, it, the best it, way physics. that I can articulate this to someone is take like a grapefruit or a balloon or something soft and squishy and just put it down on the ground. And what you'll notice is the more pressure you put on it, the more, you know, the wider that footprint gets specifically for a vehicle, you know, your, your surface area grows in length, which right. is what I call the, the, the tight, the tank track effect or, or however you want to do sure. it. Yeah. Tim, Tim Huber, who's another, another 7P guy. I remember a while ago, I want to say it was for an Overland Expo training course, actually like jacked his vehicle up. The road shack stuff. Yeah. Painted, painted a tire or something, put it down. Okay. Here's what 60 PSI looks like, which is for people watching on YouTube, which is about that big. And then here's Very what small contact patch. eight PSI look like, looks like, and it's about that big. I mean, it's the biggest thing. Also ride, ride quality, all of it, um, and all of the entire durability. Again, and, and again, one of my mantras, there's a downside. Yeah. Which is, well, first of all, if you're down, you better have a way to air back up. Yes. Um, or, or you're just being silly. But as you air down, you're exposing the sidewall to more damage potentially, especially in rocks and such like that. You're reducing your overall ground clearance because if, if you take a yeah. big sidewall and you air it down, you might lose. I mean, on mine going from 35 to 15, I lose about an inch and a half, two inches of ground clearance. Which is significant. It can be. It can be. So on, it, in the sand dunes, it's not, but in the rocks, it exactly. certainly is. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, think about how much money people spend on larger tires and suspension and whatever to gain that amount of ground clearance. And they don't <laughs> exactly. realize that if you're doing it right, you're just losing it right back again. Yep. Yep. Starting right back to zero. So again, everything has a plus and a minus as long as your eyes open with it. It's, it's okay. Yeah, it really does. And t- tire pressures are key. A good, for those that are listening, since this is a principles series for us, uh, a good rule of thumb, if you're in soft conditions, is to start by matching the tire pressure to the wheel diameter. If you have a 17 inch wheel, go down to 17 PSI. If you have a 20 inch wheel, go down to 20 PSI. Use that as a starting point in soft conditions. Uh, You may find that you need to go lower than that. If you're in a lot of sharp rocks, you want to be a little higher than that. But that is a general rule of thumb is that um, if we have a 17 inch wheel, we want to start by going down to about 17 PSI. Now, a lot of that is, it's variable, right? This is a general rule of thumb that someone can remember as a starting point. You have a very heavy vehicle. Yeah. If you're in a a four wheel camper, you know, super duty Ram 3500 thing, don't go to 17 pounds of pressure. (laughs) Well, and you may need to in the sand dunes. um, And there's ways to do that by, for example, using a chalk line test or for doing painting carcass of the tire and then putting it down onto an imprint test um, so that you can see how much of an increase in surface area you get. But there's things that you can monitor. Like if you have bead locks, you can go lower, Um, but we're really looking at what are the temperatures of the tire. So going out and doing some testing, uh, bring out a temperature gauge um, in the days of COVID. I think a lot more people have (laughs) They're like three dollars now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can you can point the little temperature laser at the side at the carcass of the sidewall, and you can determine um, what the temperature of the tire is. But that's a good starting point. Is around the diameter of the wheel. Uh, start around that point. And then adjust from there. That helps us uh, with a starting point. But we definitely want to be looking at airing down um, as a solution to help us keep from getting uh, stuck as well. So now, because we want to talk about counterpoints, so the whole goal around this is falsifiability of this idea of don't get stuck. The alternate to that idea is do get stuck. Get stuck go out, a lot. Go out and get stuck a yeah. lot. Yeah. Go out with your friends. Be 16-year-old me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which was like two years ago. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, there has become, there's this stigma about getting stuck. It's okay to get stuck. It's fun to get stuck. We learn and we grow and we we can we can try out all this cool new gear that we bought and we can 
work with our friends to come up with solutions that we can become more proficient at getting unstuck, which means when we are on the skeleton coast and the tide is coming in and we're about to lose our vehicle, we have that muscle memory, that effectiveness, those tools of the trade and those skills in our mind that allow us to get unstuck very efficiently. Yeah, the better you get at it. I mean, it's absolutely that. The more you do it, the better you become. And to get stuck in a controlled environment is a lot better to to build those skills. Recoveries, I think for people who've never done them, they're amazed at at the length of time it takes um, to do it right. So you can rush into, especially with winch winch recovery, you can rush in there and get it wrong and have to reset and do it again. And inevitably to take a moment and to think through the process and get it right the first time, do it safely, do it efficiently. It still takes a fair chunk of time. And so people, people really underestimate that. The more you do it, the more you build that muscle memory, like you're saying, the more efficient you are, the faster it is, but it's never fast. really. Yeah. Isn't so. so I've got a fun question for you, Jim. What is, what is your best stuck story? I mean, what, like huh. when a camel trophy guy gets like insanely stuck, like what, what was Have the you one had to sto- swim out of a car? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what, uh, like what? Like everybody hasn't. <laughs> um, I was just messing with you. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, Hey, no. go ahead and be Jim West. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess, well, what I will say is it wasn't a stuck, but it was an oops. And so I think we were one of the first teams to ever roll over a camel car during, during training at Eastner Castle. And, uh, in the, our instructor saw it coming a mile away. It was in this, um, winch four was, I think what it was called. So this is mud bog. And, uh, he said, right, you're going to go in, you're going to get stuck here. You know, Jim, cause Dan was driving Jim, you'll jump out and you can pick a winch, you know, basically set up a winch. It's like, okay, cool. Well, us being arrogant Americans as we are, we're the best. Exactly. Yeah. Just ask us. And we, kind of looked at it and it's like, I think I asked, I said, so Colin, uh, how about we just drive through it and not get stuck? Do, do you, I mean, do we have to get stuck? And he's like, no, what are you thinking? It's like, well, you know, if we go down this right side, um, keep a little bit of, of side tread on that, on that mud wall, very vertical mud wall that becomes important in a moment. I think, and, and Dan goes, yeah, yeah. I think I go in here in second gear. I bang third gear, get it on the turbo. I say, we go right across this bog and we don't get muddy. We don't get our wellies muddy. And, uh, uh, Colin said, I think that's a, that's an interesting plan, boys. And he did something he hadn't done all day. He said to uh, one of our journalists, Peter McGilvray, who I think still runs SEMA now. Uh-huh, um, cool. He was, a, he was a photographer for four wheelers way back then. Um, he said, Pete, how about you and I get out of the car and we'll go stand over there, which should have been our first clue that something was probably going to go <laughs> amiss. Anyway, uh, to try to keep the story short, we bailed in Dan, Dan banged third gear beautifully came on the turbo. I'm hanging out. I keep saying a little bit right, a little bit right. And he was just enough right that when it grabbed traction, it flipped the car right onto its side. And uh, so not stuck, but definitely uh, forward progress haired. So we got out. He says, okay, boys, I'll get on the radio. And actually we're laying in our belts and thinking, well, that's it. We're not going to Camel Trophy because we just laid a car on its side. <laughs> so he looked down through my window and said, hey, boys, are you okay in there? And yeah, he goes, okay, I'll get on the radio and have somebody come recover you. At which point we said, can we just do it ourselves? He said, what's your plan? And so basically we did kind of a version of a pendulum winch where we came off to a, to a tree, back to the back, to a tree and back to the car, winched the car back on its wheels, moved it forward. And we managed to get it out. So that was, he let us do it, uh, do the fail so we could have the victory and he saw our plan. So not, not my best stuck, but definitely one where learned the most lesson of, Mm. especially what a winch can do. If you have some imagination. Sure. What's, what's yours? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I think my that I think was my, in Zanzibar. <laughs> <laughs> I think my I think my funniest one was uh, it was my first off road vehicle, which was a two wheel drive Isuzu Amigo. Oh, perfect. And uh, I just I was growing up in Southern California, and I decided I was going to go out wheeling um, after work, and which means I had nothing in the vehicle. I had no idea how to operate it. I had no idea what airing down meant. <laughs> I had no idea. I just thought everything was solved with as much speed as possible. So. I was going back and forth through this. Wait, it isn't? <laughs> Solid plan. <laughs> so I was going back and forth through this mud hole. Um, it, again, two-wheel drive. And of course, it's always the last. I'm like, I'm going to do it one more one time. One more time. And um, so now I'm stuck. I, I can actually hear Highway 101 in the distance. <laughs> so I'm, I, like, I'm probably someplace I shouldn't have been. Uh, so then the only thing I had in the vehicle was the drapes from the business that I was that I was working for. Oh, man. So oh. I, I, my boss asked me to go get the, the drapes laundered. So, <laughs> so that's all I had. So I shoved the drapes underneath the wheels. You really needed it then. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that did of course nothing to get me out. So it's the most Southern California thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Make sure that you go launder the drapes yeah. <laughs> yes. and to use them as max tracks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. So I was thoroughly sucked. So I had to, I had to walk up to the freeway, find the emergency call box, oh. you know, yeah. Eat crow. So that was probably my, my most hilarious stuck, but I've been, yeah. I mean, canning stock route in the wet was the most difficult. We had uh, at one count, 12 max tracks. We were building a road. It took us 14 hours to get out. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was probably my most enjoyable travel experience I've ever had. Um, it was, it was probably that experience that reminded me how much enjoyment comes out of getting stuck, how much fun it is to make fun of ourselves, um, how much it is important to to learn the hard way and uh, to get stuck and to stay proficient at it. So it's a process. So Matt, you got to tell us your favorite stuck story. Who? And were you wearing flip-flops? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I was wearing Queensland boots and board shorts. I, I, I guess mine, um, I had just left my job as editor of Unsealed. We spent, you know, we were living in Sydney. We spent a few days in, in Brisbane, hanging out with some friends and then set out on this, I think it was just under six month trip all around Australia off-road in our Land Cruiser. And uh, first day, we're outside of this town called 1770, north of Bundaberg. And beach we wanted to go to, tide was too high, couldn't get through to the camping spot we wanted. So we were driving up this kind of access track. And there's all these, you know, places, water crossings, right? And I'm walking all of them. Laura was walking most of them. I was not the one walking them. I was driving. It was, you know, the cowboy thing. The Important fact. The gate. Well, I decide, oh, we don't need to do that. I'm just going to drive through the grass on this one. And, uh, you know, of course, Laura, who I have learned is generally right. Um, Wise man. <laughs> why are you doing this? Don't do this. It'll be fine. So our Land Cruiser probably weighed eight squillion pounds. And I remember that it had 68 kilowatts of the rear wheels, which is not many horsepowers. Um, It was slow. It was heavy. And it was sunk to the frame and then some. And I had like one small bush to winch from. And I had, uh, luckily, I, I, I had eight max, max tracks with me, four on the roof, four on the back. Um, this is before I worked with max tracks. And I ended up having to basically use the winch to position myself forward. There was nothing that I could attach to to go backwards. So I had to winch straight forward. And then I had to put go onto the max tracks. And then I had to put max tracks behind it. 
so I could kind of leapfrog myself backwards because yeah, yeah. going forward was just not, it wasn't an option because I knew that I had a viable path had I just listened to Laura. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there you go. Step one, don't get stuck. Listen, <laughs> listen to other people, <laughs> listen to your significant other. Um, but it took us hours and this yeah. is the first day of our trip. We have these, you know, uh, I, I think traveling becomes a bit romantic and, you know, we thought, okay, our, our first big day out, we're going to be gone for a while. We're going to spend it on this beach by 1770. It's going to be really cool. We'll hang out there. I ended up scarfing down McDonald's and staying in a hotel. <laughs> I, we didn't talk for about two hours because I knew. Yeah. I knew. Yeah. I knew. <laughs> yeah, that was that that that's me. That's a great story. Um, Good to learn that one young. I had I, I, I had the 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 bug bites on my legs for some time. Yeah. Yeah, I love the stuck stories. They're really fun. So Everybody. Now, now now Jim, you said you had one that was even uh, better. Well it involved you stealing a bike. Yeah, I I hate one upping. Um, but your story just reminded me of and again it's it's the ones that you learn early. Um, so I'm, it's a 16 year old version of me. So terrifying. And uh, a girl, not even a girlfriend, but she had a, gosh, I want to say it was like a 75 Ford short bed, four wheel drive. Uh, back in those days, I didn't have anything four wheel drive. Uh, kind of like your Suzu. <laughs> they used to be really expensive. Yeah. I know. Yes. And, and I, uncommon. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And as, as I was raised, my dad said, uh, four wheel drive means four wheel stuck. Uh, he knew me well before he, he knew me. Um, so we're out and quite literally in downtown Phoenix at uh, Shaw Butte, which is now all houses. I love driving by there still. We're out four wheeling between the mountains and, and we go down through this. It had rained. So we're out splashing through washes and stuff. The one rare time that there's actually water in Phoenix. And we go through this wash and I get stuck. And because she always loved four wheeling, but she never liked to drive. It was her truck. Um, so I, of course, perfect time to put it in four wheel drive. Again, you learn these lessons now. Um, so which... The back was already buried, so uh, the four-wheel drive managed to accomplish the front going down as equally far as the back now. So we're <laughs> we're on the frame rails or lower. Yeah. Um, we dig a bit because all I have is a shovel, no winch, no nothing. At least you had a shovel. Had a shovel. Back then, even thinking. No, it was hers. Yeah, it, it was hers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I dig and dig and dig and realize fairly quickly that this is basically, we're going to have to wait a couple of months for this to dry out and then drive out um, or call my dad, which was Phoenix a couple of hours, a bad idea. I said, listen, I'm going to go call a buddy of mine, uh, Kenny, who's, who's, <laughs> we, we are like-minded and, and the world survived two of us. So he's getting off work. I'm going to call him. So cell phones obviously didn't exist in 1976. I hike for about two miles, get into a housing community and there's a bike laying there in the front yard. And I thought, okay, cool. But no, no lights on anywhere. And so I steal the bike. I, I uh, uh, temporarily appropriate the bike. Um, I ride to the first house that has lights on, which is about a mile away. Again, this stuff would never happen in these days. Thank God. The gal answers the door. She's babysitting. She's probably 16. And she lets me in. I, I use the phone. I call Kenny. He says he'll be off in an hour. Cool. I ride back. My biggest fear of this whole evening was getting caught putting the bike back. Yeah, sure. Because nobody's <laughs> going to believe. No, no, I'm putting it back. Yeah, not a chance. Do that. Hike back. Uh, he shows up an hour later with his two-wheel drive truck. Promptly gets it stuck. <laughs> he has a strap, which didn't help. And so we start digging. Again, one of the, the just the silly things that you remember, there were a lot of frogs out and the frogs were making a lot of noise. And apparently for some reason, they were, they were annoying Kenny. <laughs> I'm under the truck digging and he says, okay, I've had about enough of these frogs. And it's like, well, yeah, what are you going to do? Kill them all? 
pulls out his 22 rifle from the backseat of, of the truck and proceeds to go through, I don't know how many rounds, but in fact does kill every, it, I don't know if he killed every frog, but he absolutely silenced them all. Um, <laughs> and then came back and, and, you know, again, uh, looks crossed paths with each other. We dug for about another four hours, then we had the trucks out. So. Amazing. And let's learn from Kenny and not kill frogs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> definitely not ecologically sound. No, no, it's a bad practice. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love the story. I, I like stealing the bicycle. Yeah. I, it just seemed like the thing to do at the moment, but I really was terrified of getting caught putting it back. <laughs> but, but that's so good though, that like you were trying to do the right thing and yeah, yes, I think they would have understood. Borrowing. Well, you'd like to think, but... <laughs> So this concludes part one of our principles of overlanding on recovery. You can find part two within the next few weeks. So by the middle of January of 2021, you'll find the next episode posted for part two. If you'd like to find out more information on Jim West, you can follow him on Instagram at myquest38. And you can also find out more information about his full drive training and his team with 7P International. And if you'd like to follow Matt, you can follow him at Matt Explore on Instagram. And if you would like to contact me about any feedback or questions on the show, you can reach me at scott.a.brady on Instagram as well. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next time.